You're listening to my recent appearance on the Peak Mind podcast with Michael Trainer, where we talk about the first earnest prayer that changed my life, the turning point in my journey through addiction, opening up to a power greater than myself, the huge cash bounty that pulled me down to rock bottom, applying self-honesty and calling yourself out, the root causes of addiction, longing to belong, and existential loneliness, how my obsession with self-destruction has shifted into an obsession with self-care, choosing to take the vulnerable path, the rise of the 12 steps, the new thought movement, and personal development, the value of adopting a zero-tolerance policy towards toxicity, accessing both the feminine and masculine energies within yourself, and finally, evolving as a conscious man. This was a really fun conversation on Michael's podcast. I was grateful to be a guest. I highly encourage you to go over and listen to his show and subscribe to it. He's had uh, just many outstanding conversations with some incredible people such as the Dalai Lama, for example. So definitely check out Michael's show. Don't forget to subscribe to the one you're listening to so you can catch Tuesday's episode, Cutting Edge Cures, The Cerebellum Secret for ADD and Deep Learning with Winford Doe. Let's jump into this conversation on Peak Mind with Michael Trainer, and I'll be back in your ears next Tuesday. All right, I'm here with my friend Luke Story. Luke, it's an honor to be with you. Honor to be with you, dude. Yeah, Super and Cookie, fun. by the way. Super fun day. We have a special guest star, which is Luke's dog, Cookie. Um, so Luke and I, by context, met actually at the Bulletproof when it was still the Bulletproof Conference a couple of years back. And I took to who you were being immediately. Like, I just loved kind of how you navigated the room. I, I, I sort of took notice and then I sort of sort of digested some of your podcasts and we've become friends over the years. Obviously, we've spent some time at Paleo FX recently. Um, but what I love about your story is kind of where you came from and where you are today. And obviously, we're all works in progress. But I'd love it if you could set some context for the listeners as to Luke uh, 1.0. I'm sure there was even uh, before 1.0, but as it relates to your journey, um, sort of uh, what I would call the sort of rock, quote unquote, rock star lifestyle, um, musician, drugs, parties, etc. Now you're obviously deep in the health and wellness world, but um, lay the foundation of, of what life was like for you, let's call it 15 years ago. Well, 15 years ago, I would have been well on my way on the current path. And I think at that point, I was on an upward trajectory. To get to the arc of the story, I'd probably have to go back 22 years ago or so. Okay, I like which it. Which would have been a pivotal moment in my life, February 15th, 1997. I had checked myself into a drug treatment center called Azure Acres in Sebastopol, California, which is incidentally where I first started doing drugs as a youth. And, um, you know, my life had just become a complete disaster in every way and I had a really profound spiritual experience hmm. the first day that I came to in that center and then it was the first time that I'd ever had an earnest prayer hmm. and uh, I had prayed to God of just a random nature that I could be relieved of that um, bondage and the self-imposed prison that I was living in in a lifelong addiction pattern and 
in that moment, I was set free, hmm. uh, seemingly forever, or at least 22 plus years forever. We'll see how it goes. You know, I mean, the, the night is young. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing pretty good so far. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just never know. Yeah, you never know. I don't take it for granted. But that was that was really a huge day for me because as incapacitated as I still was and as broken as I still was at that point, I was given a glimpse into the fact that there really is something there. Mm. Uh, whatever you want to call it. You know, I mean, I just use the word God because it's just the easiest um, to spell, you know, but I was desperate enough and humbled enough uh, to become open-minded to that idea that there might be some benevolent force that I could communicate with and and ask for help and that it might just work. You know, mm. I had very little faith and I didn't grow up with any kind of religion or anything really to prove that, but I just had no other choices. I was just at the bitter end and um, having lived for so many years, just completely obsessed day in, day out, every hour of the day was just all about desiring and procuring and using whatever little substance I could get to make myself feel relatively comf comfortable in my skin and be able to just handle being a human, uh, that just vanished, you know, and I really noticed that, mm. that something had happened for me and to me that I had very little to do with other than just my willing participation. And so the life that I led prior to that was a life of unresolved trauma and all kinds of different abuse as a kid and just feeling really um, like I didn't belong here. You know, the feeling that I had been sort of a stork had dropped me off on the wrong planet or even mm. in the wrong solar system, <laughs> galaxy perhaps, you know, just really out of sorts and out of place and just so uncomfortable all the time. Mm. And I'm reminded of that because there are things, life's punctuated sometimes with challenges that feel uncomfortable, but never as uncomfortable as I felt then where I was willing to really throw my whole life away just to get some temporary moments of relief, you know, so. Can, can I pause you there just yeah. for a second? So I think many people can relate to, you used a word there, you didn't belong. And yeah. so much, I think, of many of, any of us can relate to feelings of not belonging. But at least from my direct experience of witnessing, other, witnessing others um, in the bouts of addiction, um, oftentimes it is a, a very low, deeply lonely experience. Um, and I know we talked earlier but about this sort of epidemic of loneliness, obviously trauma, when you're deeply ingrained in that story and you're on this sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of hamster wheel um, to feed, so. feed the story, feed the addiction. For those who are listening, who may be within their own world of dependency, addiction, etc., what was the catalyst that gave you like that that air? Like, was it was it just you actually literally hit hit a brick wall and like knocked out and like you were like woke up in rehab, or did you have some kind of a glimmer of insight that brought you, for lack of a better term, into the light? Like, what 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 yeah. was that? What was that catalyst? Well, when I was fourteen, I was having a lot of legal problems, and so. Uh, in an effort to avert doing jail time, I was sent to this boarding school in northern Idaho, and it was this very progressive, experimental, personal development, self-help, therapeutic school for messed up kids. 
most of whom were quite wealthy. Um, my dad had a bit of money and he could, I think, just barely afford to put me there. But like Barbara Walter's daughter was there and the Sam Walton of the Walmart, you know, fame, uh, Waltons. And there's just a bunch of messed up rich kids, basically. And then they had all these, um, uh, I don't know where they even got this stuff. There was, you know, probably like primal scream therapy and all sorts of quasi psychological spiritual practices and belief systems that they kind of mashed together in a strange amalgam, very controversial place, which has since closed down due to the controversy surrounding Mm -hmm. it. But while I was there, one thing that did happen for sure is that I was rendered sober for two years of my life from 14 to 16. I was already well into my addiction at that point. And when I was there, I got a glimpse of, I think, my higher self and who mm-hmm. I really am. And I um, I experienced love. I experienced trusting an adult for the first time there. Uh, Tim Brace, who was the director, um, someone that I would you know, trust and listen to that was in a, an authoritative position. And so I had a mini kind of awakening there and came out thinking that I was going to live on the straight and narrow. But one thing that was lacking in that curriculum was a real fundamental understanding of addiction and the phenomenon of craving that takes place if you try to just have one beer, kind of once you cross this line, Threshold, yeah. you, you know, casual using for fun is kind of gone at that point. I didn't realize that. So anyway, I came out of that school. So from 16 to 26, when I finally got sober again, was a 10 year run of just some fun times. I'm not going to lie. I mean, mm. you know, as of great times, but when I moved to Hollywood at 19, um, Things just got really, really dark. And I mean, L.A. in the early 90s was a really weird place, too. It's much more safe and clean now. There was a lot of gangs. There was a huge crack epidemic. Um, The L.A. riots happened. There was a lot of racial tension. Uh, The Rodney King beating, um, Tupac, Biggie. Uh, The LAPD was incredibly corrupt. Um, The Northridge earthquake. It was just a really crazy few years from, you know, like, the 1989 to yeah. 96. So for someone hitting bottom and, and what caused me to make a decision to change my ways was that I had had a glimpse of what it was like to live with some human connection and some love and support from other people, from elders, from my peers when I was in that boarding school. So from 16 to 26, there was this still small voice inside of me that was like, you're not living in alignment with your truth. I mean, I didn't have that paradigm or framework uh, language in my head, but it was just like, I knew that I was fucking up. Mm. Even when I was like pretending like I was having a good time and being cool and rebellious and punk rock and all of that. It's like, I was always the one kind of sitting there using with my lower companion buddies going like, Luke, you're better than this. What are you doing? You know, Mm. but I just, I also knew that, um, I knew enough about, you know, having had people that were close to me that had gone into 12 step programs and gotten sober and stuff. I also knew that it was kind of an all or nothing game that when you wanted out, it was out. It's sort of like the opposite of the mafia blood in blood out. And I knew that, um, if you were serious about getting sober, that you'd have to quit smoking weed and doing all of that. And I wasn't willing to do that. I still wanted to kind of curtail the hard stuff and still have fun and drink beer and smoke weed and kind of be a hippie, you know, as I envision myself to be. Did it cost you relationships? Like I, I, yeah. Like were there times where you were like, if I had to choose between this person or using, I would choose. I would choose anything. I would, I would let go of anything. Yeah. I'd let go of a promising career as a musician, Um, all my friendship, my family, I cut, cut myself off from everyone because anything that interfered with that, 
self-medicating was um, a hindrance to my ability to soothe myself and find mm. some relief to the point of what eventually led to my uh, awakening in that that dramatic pivot that my life took at that point was and I didn't realize this until maybe a year or two ago was a, a really um, intense mushroom trip hmm. And I was not taking psychedelics intentionally at all, ever, until quite recently, <laughs> frankly. But Before uh, they were an escape, now they're more of an access Yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. And so, I, I don't know. I mean, I probably took like an eighth of mushrooms or something because I sold them. That was what I did for a living, sold mushrooms and stuff and, um, and other things. And so, I had an endless supply. But I do remember there was one night and I was crying. I was with my buddy. He was a drummer in a band I was in. Oh, I got to quit doing drugs, man. I need to get sober. I need to go to AA. Like, I can't do this on. You know, he, of course, didn't understand. I was like, dude, you're being a real bummer. What's your problem? Like, we're having fun. Just party. And that was when I had the first awakening that was just like, I got to stop doing this. I can't do this anymore. And then, fortunately for me, I was drawn to some pretty serious drugs that you have a hard time sustaining, you know. and I, I, I Like say, what kind of drugs? Heroin, crack, stuff like that. So you're using heroin and crack, mm -hmm. any, any, yeah. pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that would just get me out of myself. But the benefit of doing things like that is it's really hard to keep your hustle going. Everything just falls apart so quickly when you're mm. on that path, at least for me. Um, you know, the romanticism of being a William Burroughs that uses heroin for 20 years and just is a low-key junkie, that was never a possibility for me because everything was so chaotic and just always crumbling under me. And so um, I'm grateful because had I just been an alcoholic and kind of a, a pothead, it might have been sustainable for longer and I could have wasted more of my life. You mm. know, I feel fortunate that things like really progressed and sped up so fast in terms of addiction because I had that seed planted at boarding school that was that I had some potential. I didn't know what it was, but mm. it was much more than wandering around Hollywood Boulevard at, you know, all night long looking for drugs and shitting in my pants and just, <laughs> just you know, I was not, not a picture of success, you know, yeah. and here I am in my early 20s and just feeling so, such degradation and such shame, such deep shame around some of the things that I was doing. Because even in the drug world and the circle of, quote unquote friends that I had, I was like the worst and, you know, just hung around a lot of really bad people and put myself in situations that were dangerous and also dangerous legally. Um, and I could have gotten in a lot of trouble for some of the things I was into. So, um, you know, fortunately I had that glimmer of hope and I had that one mushroom experience where I just thought this is gonna, this has got to end, this has got to end. And then um, a funny thing happened, you know, I don't know if you've heard the, par the parable of, uh, it's, it's around like judging something as good or good or bad and that kind mm -hmm. of duality of, of judgment of an event being positive or negative. But there's a parable about the farmer who um, his son goes out um, and I'm going to get it, I'm going to botch it, but the essence of it is the son goes out uh, hunting and brings home a bunch of stray horses and everyone in the town congratulates him. Oh my God, this is such a gift, you know, what a blessing. And the wise man, the wise farmer says, well, we'll see, you know. And then one of the horses bucks his son off, his son breaks his leg and everyone in the town says, oh, this is so unfortunate. And the, the wise man says, oh, we'll see. And then... Um, and then there's a war and all the, the young men are enlisted and drafted into the war. And, of 
course, the son doesn't go because he's got a broken leg from the horse and everyone in the town comes and is, is, is congratulatory, um, giving their praises that the so fortunate that the son didn't have to go to war. The wise man says, we'll see, right? And it goes on and on like that, ad infinitum. My <laughs> we'll see was getting bit on the face by a Rottweiler wow. at a party when I was 20, 26. And, uh, and he would have thought that that was the most, you know, um, horrific event ever, but because I got bit on the face by a Rottweiler, I sued uh, my friend who owned the dog, who was incidentally my pot dealer, and voluntarily said, hey, I have renter's insurance. You should sue me and get some money. So I did. And I got like $7,000, which you would have said, hey, this is a good thing, right? I said, well, we'll see. Look what happens next. What happens next is I proceed to spend all but I think $1,500 of that money on drugs exclusively. I mean, I just, it was the first time in my life I had an endless supply of cash that I could go squander on 6 and Alvarado in downtown LA. Anyone that was around in the 90s will know that intersection. <laughs> and um, so you say, oh, that's horrible. God, it's so horrible you got that money because now, you know, you've got strung out. But what happened was, is I just, I got into such a dark place so fast because I had resources finally. Mm. Before that, it was, you know, I'm piecing the, I'm selling some CDs on the corner to get eight bucks to do my thing. You know, I never had money. And so... Um, so I burned through all that money and then I was so terrified that I was going to spend all the money. And I knew that even if I dried out again and cleaned up that I was just going to go right back on it because the times in between um, going to kick got shorter and shorter every time mm. over the course of five or six years. First time I quit, it was like for a year, you know, I mean, I didn't quit everything, but just the bad stuff. And and then the next time it was six months, then it was three months, then it was a month, then it was like a couple weeks. Shorter spirals. Yeah, I would do this like train spotting thing where I would get one of my drug buddies to sequester me away somewhere where I didn't have a car access to a pager or, or whatever to re-up. And I would go through withdrawal and just be sick for a couple of days and then come out of it. And I'd be like, oh, I'm never doing that again. And for a while I wouldn't. But those, mm. those times got shorter and then I would come out of that and just immediately go do it again. Yeah, think about like the Johnny Cash, like where he's like literally in that like rural home and his, his finally his family actually like, and he just goes through the hard withdrawals of... Yeah, and it's the awesome. shit you see in the movies is real too. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's really, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's some of the visions and stuff. I don't know that ever hallucinated and stuff, but you're just suicidally depressed and like the worst flu of your life and that, and you know that you can make it stop like that fast. Mm. You just need 20 bucks wow. and this all goes away. And that's the, that's the hamster wheel of addiction. So anyway, went through all that. And then, uh, yeah, I knew that, um, I was going to go right back to it. And so I, I reached out for help and I, you know, I called my mom and, um, she helped me get into that center. And that was like, that was really, truly like, feels like the beginning of my life because that's when the healing began. And I had a whole, new life experience after that. I mean, it's it's really like there's like an AD and a, hmm. or a BC and an AD kind of thing. It's wow. just my experience before that was so, so different. And not to say that I haven't struggled with things since then, but that was such a, um, just a complete 180 in my life. And that's when I started to really, truly embrace spirituality and get into health and all the stuff now that people call biohacking. Um, it just, it was so necessary to detox and cleanse my body and changed the way I thought, felt, lived, my relationships, just everything had to completely change. And so that was the beginning of, of the journey that brought me up to now. And then, you know, that 
led to other opportunities professionally and things like that that took me in all kinds of different directions that were totally unexpected. Yeah. But in terms of the inner shift, you know, hitting that bottom for someone who's in addiction. I mean, that's the, that's the fucked up thing about it is that if something's really got you, you're not going to let it go until you've been forced to. I mean, that's the, the tragedy of the addiction model. So you kind of have to hit... That kind of, you have to hit rock bottom. And, yeah. then, and then you either have a reckoning or you... Yeah, don't. and also the bottom is, it's an internal experience too. You know, mm-hmm. to some people it's losing your business, losing your house, the divorce, losing the kids. Sometimes it's external repercussions of your behavior. But in my case, I didn't have anything to lose anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I, I didn't own a car. I mean, I didn't have shit. Um, I was living at a poverty level and in all ways, metaphysical and physical. So I didn't have anything to lose, but the last thread of moral fiber that I had and the last kind of desire and will to live was starting to erode. And so my bottom was just more of an inside bottom Mm. where I just came to the realization that I just can't live this way anymore. You know? So what were, so thank you for the, for sharing, first of all. And you know, I think so many people can relate whether they've been, you know, all the way down the, the sort of pathway of addiction. I think in this modern age, you know, most of us have at least contended with something on the spectrum as it relates to addiction and looking to external sources to fill that void within in that, sh- what's they call it? The, the, the sort of hollow ghost, right? It's like, no matter what yeah, you do, yeah. you can't fill it. Oh, and, God. and what's interesting though, so... Knowing you now, right, which is when our relationship has really started, um, I, I, you know, within the last couple of years, and actually having stayed with you, what's interesting is not that you're addictive. In fact, you occur to me to be like profoundly grounded. But what's interesting is I've never met anyone with a stronger routine. Like, like I almost <laughs> feel like whatever that inner psychology was that had you so determined to score in the olden days. Is the same psychology actually at play now turned in a good, well, quote unquote, good way, yeah. right? Like I'm not, I don't want to be one to say good and bad, but just yeah. say, but is now turning your favor because your your regimentation, which I think is actually going to be of huge value to the audience. I mean, so one of the things Luke shares, which we'll see if hopefully we'll have some time to get into it, but like I watched your routine as it related to flying. Like you made a video, I think I remember it was an Instagram live or whatnot, but Luke Let's just say Luke's biohacking game is about <laughs> as strong as they come. And I've seen some strong game, but like you're, you know, like you had literally like the day and night capsules, you had the human chart, you, you had, you had like all the things. And then when I stayed with you and I was like, you were like your nighttime, like it was like a half an hour to an hour long, like your supplements. And obviously you would travel with that because we're in Austin together. And, you know, I'm, it's, what's interesting is for me, I feel like my, my health game is strong when I'm home, but I travel a lot. But what I think I can, one of the things I want to learn from you, and I think I can learn from you, many of us can learn from you, is like how you take it with you, right? Like, and I feel like you've applied that mindset that was potentially debilitating slash super destructive for you in your youth. And I may be reaching here, but this is, this is what I've noticed. And like, that's now become like an engine for you in like a positive way. And like, like, the way that you approach the world, both in terms of your own health, as well as like your reg, your, your routine and regimen around supporting others through like your podcast and your very, you know, the various things you're up to. 
But I mean, do you do you see the two as related at all? Is that a, is that a stretch? And 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 furthermore, like what have what's been the most helpful for those who have had a similar journey with addiction? Like being where you are now, some twenty two years later, what really supports you in living this sort of optimized life? Well, <laughs> first off, I have to just acknowledge that my obsession with self-destruction yeah. has absolutely transferred over to an obsession with self-care. Exactly. Yeah. That's what, thank you. You said that much more eloquently and succinctly, yeah. but yeah, that, that was my noticing. And I was like, yeah. yeah. On, on the positive side, I feel younger. I feel more energetic. I feel happier. I think I probably look healthier. I mean, yeah, I'm putting on, you know, some years. Uh, hey, you look great. You, how old are you now? 48. 48. So you're 48. Yeah. You're like uh, Anthony Kiedis as well. I saw, you know, not long ago. He's probably 56. Um, I don't think either of us are as ripped as Anthony Kiedis. But what strikes mm-hmm. me about Anthony Kiedis in your story is like to go from heroin. Now, he ta- he talks about that where he's like, yeah. I went from like searching for like white hair on to like to now <laughs> wild salmon, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And needless to say, um, yeah. You occur to me also as looking younger than, even especially given the, what you put in your body, you you occur to me as much healthier than your biological age. And that's the upside in being able to accomplish some cool things and, as you say, be optimized. Um, so there's advantages to doing things, taking care of yourself and all of the different practices, which we can go into um, some of them. And I will, I will specifically speak to the ones I think that are most useful for Please. recovery. The other side of that is um, perhaps, I don't know that it's necessarily negative, but to some degree pathological is the obsession with ritual and always monitoring how I feel and wanting to take different things to feel different ways. I mean, that's absolutely 100% carried over. Mm. And so now I might, um, you know, be a little sleepy. So I take a modafinil or do some smart drugs or something like that. A bunch of caffeine gets super amped and I'm like, "Mm, a little too amped. And then I'll go take some Kratom or I'll take some GABA or something to come down. I mean, it really mm. is like very much like a speed bump. You know, when you do, when you mix something like cocaine and heroin, like an upper and a downer, you're always trying to find that sweet spot. And I've definitely observed that I'm always trying to find that sweet spot also where I feel super energized and feel vital, but also not anxious, mm. you know? And so... I Have think, you done that without any exogenous substances? So like, for example, for those contexts, people don't know, yeah. we're at Luke's home right now. He has what I term the Zen Den. I think it's going to stick. I'm taking that name. it's going to stick. I need to get a little plaque. We've got to get you a plaque. But he's got literally like uh, infrared sauna. He has a, a, a biocharger, which is a super high end uh, Tesla coil. You know, you've got like the, you've got a, a uh, you've got the the juve. You've got the 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 uh, shaking plate for the lymphatic system. I mean, you're 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 you got it. Cold plunge, you know, your, your, your bio chart, you got an inverter. <laughs> Earlier we were in, well, Luke was inverted. Yeah. Um, so like those are all state shifting apparatus, yeah. but they, but they're not, uh, but they're, but they're not pills. Right. So yeah. do you ever play with, well, I'm sure you do, but like, have you ever tried being like, instead of trying to control it um, with, for lack of a better term, um, nootropics? using uh, simply either breath or meditation or some of the other devices and yeah. and doing it, um, for lack of a better term, naturally, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you, if, you, if you break down the psychoanalytic 
dynamic of take someone who's super self-destructive very i was always very obsessive and compulsive you know first i was into like bruce lee then it was black sabbath then it was skateboards i mean Mm -hmm. whatever it was it was like it just eclipses everything and i just have tunnel vision and that's all i think about all i talk about all i do is that thing and that's kind of like all of the lifestyle practices are like that now and so there is a huge upside to that which i described um but I also have to be honest with myself that um, a lot of it does have to do with control. Mm. And that's a word that you used. And I've looked at it from an analytical, objective point of view. And I think there were a lot of situations when I was a kid in which I wasn't in control. And in some cases was under too much control. And so having uh, the principle of freedom, the value of freedom and autonomy has been really important to me. And also freedom in being able to produce a state change one way or another whenever I want. And so there are a lot of people that just kind of go with the flow and feel however uh, their circumstances dictate they should feel in any given moment. Whereas I don't want to feel how circumstances want to make me feel. I want to feel how I want to feel when I want to feel that way. Mm. And that's um, indicative of someone who uses exogenous means to achieve that state, whether they be destructive or productive. And some of them are double-edged swords. I mean, you could take plant medicines and they can be very destructive or they can be highly productive depending Mm. on set, setting, intention and all of that, right? I don't know if there's a place for like street drugs um, per se to be productive in any way. But, and uh, I think the most powerful things that have really impacted my sobriety and my life have been things that don't involve any kind of pill, powder, device, potion, or any of that. Let's go into those. I'd love, for those listening, like, what have been some, what is the Luke, like, okay, I'm pumping this up a bit, but what's, like, what are, like, the Luke story, like, SEAL Team 6? Like, what's the, like, what's the, like, ninja sauce, like, super powerful formula of, of tools, practices, like, you name it, that is, like, your go-to for, like, this is, like, like you asked me my top three, for example, like yeah. books, like yeah. which, what do you, what's, what's in your quiver? Well, the number one thing is an ongoing relationship with God. Mm. And that goes back to the beginning of the conversation. You know, what was the thing that performed this true miracle? And I don't call just anything a miracle, but when you were living the way I was living and completely incapable of changing your circumstances and then i introduced one principle or one truth or one practice and that was just going hey god i don't know if you're a real thing i've only seen this in the movies but i think you put your hands together like this and you kneel in front of the bed you know i'm fucking dying here i need help and then that unseen hand comes and goes and just completely turns your world upside down you know as, as i said earlier that got my attention and So that is something that's been building into not like a set aside time or place where I don't have to go in a certain building or be involved in a certain ritual or even to pray in the formal sense, but just building an awareness into my life that there's there's another dimension or a series of dimensions that are available to me now in this moment Mm. and that there is a force that's always here, that's always present, that I can access as soon as I put my awareness on it. And so rather than having to like right now go, you know what, I need to get centered, Michael, excuse me, I'm going to go in the other room, get on my hands and knees and pray. We can be recording a podcast and five freaking video cameras. And I'm aware that my dog sitting on your lap, 
even though I'm really focused on you, but I'm also aware that God is present and with me. Mm. As I said, spirit, whatever you want to call it. You know, some people have a real aversion to God, which is, you know, a sad um, artifact of some of the misguided people in religion over millennia. But to me, it's just easy words, just God. Like, let's just be real about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a man of, of faith, you know. And, yeah, it's um, beautiful. And so that's the number one thing. And it's, a part of that is also connecting with other people in a compassionate, empathetic way. And we were talking about this on my podcast. You were alluding to the power of community and the power of just human connection. And I can have, you know, a room full of biohacking technology and a huge supplement cabinet and say, I'm feeling a little off and disconnected. I'm anxious or I'm depressed or sad or I'm feeling some anger or resentment. I've got a perplexing issue that I can't find a solution to. And I'll try to do all of that shit and nothing works. But then just like giving someone a hug, calling a friend, mm-hmm. sitting down with someone, becoming vulnerable, becoming emotionally connected to someone um, is to me a way of accessing God through that person because mm. we're each, you know, in constant union with God, whether we know it or not. So if I sit down with you and I really open my heart to you, and share what's going on, the God in you is going to be able to receive that because I've chosen you as part of my inner circle because you're someone that also has access to that that force. Mm. And so surrounding myself with people that are aligned with spiritual principles, even though you might have a completely different paradigm of how you interact with those principles or truths, you're still a man that lives by principles and a man of character. And so carefully choosing people in my life that value spirituality has enabled me to not only have my own ongoing relationship with God that can really transform my experience in a moment, but also to have people to go to that I can connect with. Mm. And so that's, you know, when it all comes down to it, that's the really important thing. And I think if I'm really honest with myself, a lot of the shit that I do is just a distraction because sometimes it's hard work to sit there and contemplate the existence of a creator and to put your faith into that rather than just going, you know what, I'll stand in front of the red light thing and I'll feel better, hmm. you know, than just going, you know what, God, I'm going to talk to you a bit. Let's have a conversation here and show me what to do and guide me and to be earnest about it and to really believe that that's going to work. And the funny thing about, you know, prayer and all its different forms, because there are so many different ways that you can approach that, is that when you have faith, it works whether or not you have faith or not. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's kind of a paradox. And and I learned this early in recovery. I mean, when you when you go into rehab, I mean, what you do in rehab for anyone that's not been is you learn the twelve steps and you learn how to apply them in your life. And then once you leave, you're highly encouraged to adopt that lifestyle and that community as a means by which to maintain what you've started in that twenty eight days or however long you're in there. Which is what I did. And. That works whether or not you think it's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. You know, God is not a conditional God that says, well, you know, you better have a cross or a star David around your neck and then I'll work with you. You know, that intelligence, um, that universal omnipresent intelligence is ready and available whenever we are. It's that Mm. we're given the gift of free will. You want to go be a serial killer? I mean, there's going to be some karma to contend with, but quote, end quote, God is not going to come intervene because that's the gift we've been given on the scale of consciousness from an amoeba to a holy saint, enlightened being. We've got a, you know, really wide scale of energetic experience that we can express and a mm-hmm. lot of unkarma to, to build and, 
and to create or to unfold, right? And so when it comes to having that faith, it's not important that I believe, it's just important that I'm willing to believe. Yeah. And that's the that's the basis of all of what I you know think is one of the most powerful teachings in human history is the the 12 steps just in a general way. And it's difficult to talk about that particular teaching because the <laughs> because of the principle of anonymity, you kind of have to dance around that. But let's just say as an arbitrary teaching like the Bible or Course in Miracles or um, Kabbalah or any of the other great systems. Um, it is a really powerful and simple system. And at the foundation of that is that all that's required for it to really work. In other words, to have a working relationship with God that gives you the power over things that you formerly had no power over is your willingness to humble yourself and open your mind to the idea that there is something there that you don't even have to name. Mm. You don't have to believe in, but if you're just willing enough to try that, it meets you halfway. And that's the beauty of the relationship with God in my life is that I know that it knows that I'm trying to find my way back to it Mm. and that I'm going to fall all the time. And then I'm going to get caught up in which vitamin to take and all this bullshit. At the end of the day, I'm still going to come home, you know, and I'm going to find people like you that walk me home and I'm going to walk others home. And so all of the physical stuff to me is just, it's a bit of novelty and a bit of a game to get to the final destination, which is the, general outgrowing of the human experience at the ego level, at the mind level, you know, to attain a higher level of consciousness and to grow as a soul, as a spirit while I'm here. That said, I'll add the caveat that all of that is much easier when your mitochondria are working (laughs) and when your circadian rhythm is in sync, planetarily speaking and being in tune with the cosmos and being in tune with nature and being out in the sun and being conscious of the moon cycles and grounding your bare feet to the earth and Mm. drinking spring water and getting in cold water and getting in the ocean and having animals around in your life and totally you know all of the things that you can use to increase the energetic potential of your body do assist in the spiritual ascension but one without the other is incomplete, mm. uh, I believe. Now, an uh, enlightened master or mystic in a cave in the Himalayas might disagree that you just need you know, some yak butter and some rice and you have to do any of that shit and you can communion with God just fine. But you know, is that yogi coming down off the mountain and helping other people? achieve what he or she has achieved you know i think in order to do that there's a certain amount of physical energy and vitality that's necessary case in point being a person like tony robbins you know who's able to just put out such a tremendous amount of energy and power because he is working on the physical level as well as the metaphysical and spiritual level Mm. so he's like exemplifies someone to me who um is able to reach the masses with spiritual energy using his physical presence and his physical body and his big body and his voice and his ability to travel over the world and sustain that kind of vitality. I don't think Tony Robbins would be Tony Robbins if he weighed 350 pounds and was drinking Diet Cokes all day and, you know, living on canola oil and under blue light and EMFs and all the things that we're faced with. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's how do you set yourself up uh, in the best possible way to have that beautiful spiritual experience and relationship as you articulated it. I mean, I'm literally sitting here with your dog who I just met today and like I'm falling slowly in love with Cookie (laughs) because Cookie's like on my leg and I just feel 
you know, her little heart. And it's like, it's like for me, like nature, I'm not saying it's the only thing that's sacred, but for me, nature's always been church, you know? And it's like, like you said to your point earlier of like, these things are always happening. We kind of go our way and like find our way back or not. And we stumble and this and that, but it's like, but take me to some magnificent sort of sacred waterfall. And I'm reminded of, you know, it's like, or look up at the Milky Way and these, you know, the, the abundance of the, of the universe beyond us. And all of those give us, for me, that's like a conversation with God because it's like a yeah. great, it's a great um, context setter. But getting, being reminded of the importance of that goes to your point as well of like, how do you set yourself up for those conversations? Because I can say, for example, when I was working 16 hours a day and then going out at night in New York City, um, you know, I didn't take too many opportunities, which is, which is even more urgent, which, you know, more and more people are living in mega metropolises, right? And like more and more removed from nature. And more besieged by some of the things you're sharing, like 5G, you know, unhealthy foods, unhealthy substances. So, so actually having a roadmap to bolster your defenses, if you will, such that you can have that conversation and whatever that looks like for you is now more, I'd say it's in some ways more challenging, but also it's more opportune than ever in terms of, you know, some of some of because I think with any challenge there's a commensurate opportunity with any obstacle there's a you know commensurate opportunity it's yeah. my particular worldview yeah but it does require um, allies as you shared right yeah. like in my listening and I, I, I could be off but it occurred to me that you had an early lifeline in someone that had your back and that gave you a, a glimmer of hope and that now um, you know, you've chosen through, in, in some ways, your spiritual practice to find others who are aligned in that conversation, such that you've now created more than a lifeline. You've created a web, a web of, of yeah. fo- folks that have your back and support you in that conversation that you're having. Uh, and forgive me if I'm, I may be off, but that's how I'm how, how I'm hearing oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So for those, for, so for those who are listening, who um, are figuring their way to to weave their own web. Right, and I and I love that you actually because I, I anticipate we get on here and it'd be biohacking secrets, this you know, all, all the things. I mean, there's a lot of but, cool stuff. But, but and, and I would actually like to touch on that, you know. But 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 I also <laughs> want to acknowledge before we do that. Yeah, I want to acknowledge the fact that you took the more vulnerable path, which I think, I think there's medicine in that. Right, like Brene Brown talks about it. Oh, uh, it's been so great. she's so good. But it's hey, if been, you ever get her on your podcast, that's one introduction. I would decl- really. <laughs> I'll, I'll declare it now, and I'll, I'll work on it. I've never tried to book her. Yeah, but she's she's one of she's my hard. favorites. She's hard. She's she's in yeah, demand. She's I mean, she. Big, yeah. The thing is, she's bringing a, such a profound, relatable truth that's so mm-hmm. obvious, but somehow wasn't shared. You know, it's like yeah. I'm reading this book by Amy Cuddy now, Presence. Which is like, I think she has like the second. Brene Brown and Amy Cuddy have the, two of the top ten TED talks of all time. But Amy Cuddy's the Harvard researcher that talks about body language, right, oh, and like wow. what you're communicating before you even walk in, and oh, how you can cool. influence your presence, right? Like, so right. introvert, extrovert, like it's basically, it, it it's like obvious, but and we know it, like, but we don't know it, right? We haven't put words to it yet, and right. Brene does that as well, right? Where she right. talks about vulnerability and courage and like our wounds and shame, right? Which is we all contend with so frequently. Yet, for whatever reason, it hasn't been put out in the open. 
and I think there's a huge deal in that as well as right is like things generally have shame over you keep secret and hide right and then once you which is I understand it that's part of the 12 step process once you share things publicly it's like there's no shame in that it, it's yeah. like you've kind of you you take it out of the shadow, if you will. Yeah. And so it's beautiful that you shared so vulnerably. It was interesting because we just did a podcast I did on Luke's show, which you should check out, but where I shared things I'd never shared before. And there's a liberation in it, right? Because if you hold something dear to your heart, but like you don't, uh, in my in my, I will say for myself, speaking vulnerably, there's been times where I have not chosen the path of courage to share things because of fear of judgment, my own and others. Yeah. And, which I shared with you earlier, right? It's like, I share certain things, like certain doors might be closed to me, right? Because like in that established, like, you know, uh, world, like they may see me as, oh man, that guy's like lost sight of the shore. He's like gone a little bit far afield, you know? <laughs> like, you know, he's talking about biohacking and like spirituality. But then at the same time, I'm like, you know what? Those are authentic passions of mind. And I may, even if those doors do close, other doors open, right? Like like the door to your home, right? Like f- new friends, new new avenues and opportunities. And so just, I feel like I'm just reflecting out loud what I think hopefully some, some of the folks listening, which is just like, thank you for the courage to share your story because, you know, it opens doors. It's like, you know, we we're talking about earlier relationship building. And so many times if you're in like a conference or you're at a dinner, people will start sharing very surface level what they do, what they're interested in, what they're passionate about. Boring. Boring. As soon as one person <laughs> shares vulnerably yeah. and speaks to the heart instead of the head, it changes the whole tenor. And then what you'll find is then people will start to open their own hearts and share more vulnerably, which leads to this like collective rapport. And that's actually where the magic happens. Those are the rooms people want to be in. And that's the stuff people are yearning for, right? That like authenticity, that like realness, right? Not this like, which we're now besieged with more and more, right? Everyone, including myself, we all put our kind of highlight reels out there on social media as like a projection of how we want the world to see us. But like what people are yearning for in the isolation and loneliness that comes from this uber connected world is that, right? Like we're all struggling. You know, we all have the non-highlight reel. I've, I've actually often wondered, like, is anyone going to start an Instagram account of all their lowlights? You know, like, that, in some ways it would be a great parody. Dude, that's exactly what, <laughs> that's exactly what just came to me because probably at least once a day I get impatient or frustrated or annoyed or confused or something. And I never go on Instagram. Hey guys, what's happening? So I'm super fucking pissed because UPS <laughs> just came. And I, I it, it's not so much that I, that I, I'm afraid to be vulnerable or be seen as imperfect or a guy that doesn't have his shit together who, you know, ostensibly has my shit together a lot more than I ever have. But Mm -hmm. I also just don't like giving energy to negativity. Sure. You know, to me, it's like when I see myself kind of slipping into a lower state of consciousness or a lower state emotionally, it's not that I don't want anyone to know. It's that I'm trying to get out of that as quickly as possible. And sometimes sharing that and expressing it just has the compound effect of making it um, stick. I have a question. Uh, this. In other words, like energizing negative thoughts, such as UPS. Every time they come, they do, 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 you know, whatever like grievance one can find that because of the negativity bias and because things that are unfortunate and not to our preference continually happen over and over again in the human experience. But I try to not energize them whenever possible, and that this goes back to really like in the spiritual framework, something that's been hugely impactful to me. And that's been uh, the teachings around the new thought movement. 
which mm-hmm. was uh, between like the 20s, maybe 1920 and 1940, uh, which is where the book Alcoholics Anonymous came out of. Um, Hmm. Prior to that, William Jane's The Variety of Religious Experience. Uh, Emmett Hmm. Fox is a big New Thought teacher. He has a book called Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of these guys were sort of uh, reformed Christians that developed a scientific Christianity where it wasn't about um, joining a religion. It was about extracting the teachings. And in this particular case would have been the Judeo-Christian a paradigm uh, as taught by Jesus, unconditional love, and really monitoring your thoughts and your consciousness. And so that's why it's called the New Thought Movement. Mm. And Napoleon Hill came out of this. Yeah. You know, Think and Grow Rich. It's all about like tweaking your thoughts. And then the whole personal development scene to me came out of that. And then was also kind of later infused with psychology and stuff like that. Anyway, longer conversation. But in that vulnerability and being honest about one's own pain or one's own struggle is sort of a double-edged sword because if you give it too much energy, now you're imbuing negative, erroneous, false thoughts that aren't even true. Like it's not true that it sucks that the UPS guy didn't leave the package and left the stupid note and now I can't get my thing. It's actually arbitrary and completely neutral until yep. my mind says that's wrong, it should be another way. Totally. And you can take that, about, I mean, you can go global with that. I mean, we all think we know how to solve the world's problems and that there are even our problems, but they're all largely based on our perspective, because we don't know, evolutionarily speaking, what's supposed to come next. So if you had been a dinosaur, if they even existed, I'm not certain of the, that they did. <laughs> but but because uh, I haven't seen one. Uh, but if you were a dinosaur, you'd be hella pissed at the cataclysms and the meteors and all that. And you think this is the worst thing ever. Well, if that didn't happen, then there'd be no humans around, right? And so, well, and probably you wouldn't even be hella pissed because it wouldn't happen so quick. <laughs> you, you'd, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be you dust before you knew it. But do you see what I'm saying? In other words, like it's. But I actually, so I want to dig in on this a little bit because yeah. what occurs to me is like two things. One is, so what you said is actually one of the things I'm still looking for an eloquent solution to, which is obviously we all have this in our own minds, right? Like we can go into that, for lack of a better term, critical voice or negative voice. I've been pretty good at shifting, um, but there are opportunities. So for example, I just went back to New York and I was in a car uh, with a woman who was driving and she was, I won't go into it because I'm not gonna, I don't wanna gas the, the negativity. It occurred to me such that she was living in a very negative victim oriented paradigm, right? Like all the things that are wrong with society, culture, and how that's how she's at effect to that in her life. Now, I'm not saying that those aren't real experiences or potentially traumatic, but I, I have experienced the difference between someone that sees himself at cause in life, someone that sees himself as fully responsible and an agent, no matter what the circumstance, sort of the Viktor Frankl like uh, yeah. worldview. Yeah, and I've seen others. Uh, including myself, who get a lot of fuel and a lot of gas at times from seeing themselves as victim and having other people feed their story. Now, I'd like to interrupt that conversation uh, and or not interrupt it, but exit, to be totally honest, because that's maybe an ineloquent solution, but like gracefully bow out. But as I found myself stuck in a three-hour car ride, I was like, how do I handle this? Because I don't want to make someone wrong. Um, I also don't want to like subject my worldview, which is like, let's change the channel on this like negativity. Cause it's kind of like re- listening to like a really shitty radio station for like three hours. I was like, I'd rather like listen to some jams. 
you know, um, but but also there's something to be said for like, you know, the and I this is somewhat divergent, but like there's also like what I would call spiritual bypassing where it's like, you know, like let's not deal with the realness and like let's only talk about like we're like, you know, you know, everything's flu fluey and amazing. And, and, and to me, there's there's sort of a middle ground, right? Or like that middle way. I don't know that there's an eloquent mechanism to that. But if you have any insights on like when you're surrounded by people, like I imagine you wouldn't even go on that resonance. But if Luke now went back to some of the friends, I'm guessing who you knew on that block downtown, wherever that block was and saw them. Those weren't friends. (laughs) Yeah, those weren't, those weren't, first of all, those were recognized. Those weren't true friends. But if you had to be in a car with them for three hours, like okay, this is maybe an extreme example, yeah. but how do you reset conversations that that are vacuums of your time and yeah. energy? Like, yeah. do you have any insight on that? Because that's actually something I'm genuinely trying to figure out myself. Because I want I want to be I don't want to be precious with my time, but I want to treat my time preciously and my energy preciously and fuel those that have a, a, a mutual respect and where there's there's something we're learning from each other, right? Like this, like these kinds of conversations. I'd rather not, I mean, some of it's inevitable, but I don't want to gas. And I think many people can relate to that, right? Because there's like people in your life that like you love and feed you. There's people in your life that drain you. And like, are you a, are you a battery or a black hole? And how do you, how do you, how do you gravitate more towards the batteries? In an act of self-love, I have a absolute zero tolerance policy Mm. toward toxicity. Mm, Beautiful. What's that look like in real in real time? So say for that example. That looks like I'm in a conversation with someone that is in a darkness yeah. and has no desire whatsoever to be lifted by any means out of that darkness. I just, I mean, this is, I've worked on people pleasing a lot. This yeah. wasn't always easy, but I'll literally just be like, cool, listen, if someone just came up, I got to go and I just walk away. Yeah. You know, and there would have been a time in my life I'd be afraid to do that because I'd be afraid that they're going to judge me. And then through some various forms of work and just waking up to the reality that, like, if I don't even like someone, why do I need them to like me? And then that goes into the deeper conversation of self-worth and why mm. is why is my self-worth derived from, you know, letting someone sit here and dump on me? Because they're in so much pain, they want to share that pain and that negative energy is so overwhelming and cumbersome to them that they erroneously believe that by spewing it out on me and into the air that we're sharing, that it's going to alleviate some of that suffering within them. That said, uh, I'm around people all the time that are struggling and need help and might be in a really low state of consciousness at any given time. The difference being that they have a sincere desire to get out of it. Mm. And so I think that's kind of for me too, in, in terms of how much depth or vulnerability I'll share with something I'm struggling with is A, what's my motive in sharing that? Is it for attention? Is it for sympathy? Is it to play the victim card? Or is it an effort to really say, hey, fuck, I'm hurting. I need help. Can someone help me? Yeah. A and B is that I find it for me much more useful in terms of sharing um, the way out is finding my way out but whatever by whatever means I can and then sharing it once I'm kind of on the other side of it where I can say like, wow, this is heavy, this hurt. I'm in the process of healing or I've healed this particular situation. And then there's a way that you can more objectively share that without burdening other people in that negativity. Because yeah. 
once it's been transmuted, it's no longer negativity. It's just an arbitrary experience that was alchemized into a positive lesson. Mm-hmm. But when I'm around someone else, if they're in too low of a state, I might not have the energy to try to lift them up to a place that's stable enough to have a conversation or ride in a car or go to a social event together or something like that. So I just tend to kind of um, gauge what my resistance is to that, meaning um, the amount of um, tolerance that I have for it. And if I can keep my energetic force field strong enough where I can maybe be in close proximity to someone who's having a moment without me getting dropped down to whatever level of consciousness they're experiencing at that given time. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, what I've noticed on the metaphysical level is that I could be with you on any given day and you could be like, fuck the world, I want to kill myself, Luke nothing's fair everyone's against me you know I mean, you could just be in the worst of doldrums and as long as you have you know a mustard seed of desire to come out of it i can sit with you all day long and it wouldn't affect me mm. yeah it's really crazy that's but, fascinating you know, i've observed this working with addicts and stuff a lot i mean because they can be really really negative and dark yeah especially when they're newer in that process but if there's a modicum of humility open-mindedness if there's a willingness to take suggestions a willingness to change. I think humility is the is the key ingredient there where someone's like, dude, I know right now I'm a real drag to be around. I'm trying to get out of it, but I'm really struggling. I'm yeah. super negative right now. And you're like, I get it. I'll sit with you. I can hold space for that. But I can't hold space for someone that wants me to jump down in the ditch with them. That's you know? that's a key distinction. There's Thank a difference. I mean, you could say it like you could summarize all of that simply by saying, okay, so I run into you, Michael, you're down in the quicksand and I reach out my hand and you don't want to grab my hand to pull out. You want me to jump down in the quicksand with you. I'm not fucking getting in there. Yeah. I, already, I already spent 22 years climbing my fucking way out of the quicksand. Yeah. But I'll stop and reach out for your hand. And if you grab my hand, I will die trying to pull you out of the quicksand. But you have to do your part. And I really believe this is the way in the macrocosm spirit works with us too. Spirit mm. says, you want to stay in the quicksand? Fucking go for it. Mm. You want to be homeless? You want to be selfish? You want to be a thief? You want to be a criminal? You want to harm other people? That's your will because you have that scale of consciousness to play with. The contrast of a soul's contract in a human experience to incarnate here and have whatever experiences you want to either go up or down the scale of evolution. Mm-hmm. And God says, you want out? Take my hand. And here we go. Boom. And then you have a miraculous turnaround and all of a sudden your life's completely different because you wanted to get out of the ditch. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, it's a fine line between having compassion and empathy and caring for others and being loving toward others, but being loving enough to oneself to have boundaries. Yeah. And say like, cool, you're in that space. I get it. You know, and I have to be honest with myself and have the humility to know how much of that I can stand before it starts to infect me. Yeah, the loving boundaries piece is something I've really been working on. Well, you know, it's crazy about it too, you know, in terms of, it's kind of another thing, but something I'm just learning that I'm excited about because um, I was not, uh, in my upbringing, I wasn't really taught boundaries. You know, there Mm -hmm. weren't a lot of boundaries around um, in my upbringing from the adults that were shaping my personality. And so as an adult, I've not really known how to create boundaries in my relationships 
And something I learned recently, I've been reading a book about codependency. It's called Facing Codependency by Pia Melody. It's an amazing book. I mean, I, I don't, I'm still not even sure what the diagnosis of codependency is, but I read that book and I'm like, shit, whatever the shit is, I got it. You know? <laughs> and um, she wrote one on love addiction too, which is, I'm like, I don't, what even, even is that? It's such a nebulous term, but I read that book and I was like, I relate to a lot of this, yeah. you know? And so um, it's just, you know, we experience trauma, especially in the first seven years. And then it, sort of shapes our behavior and our character. And so we have these certain propensities, but she has a lot of great teachings on boundaries. And she was explaining in this book, it's up in the Zen Den there. Yeah. It's kind of my daily read right now, um, how when children's boundaries are violated, then as an adult, they'll either have no boundaries with anyone else and become a perpetrator or abuser on the worst you know, end of things, or just be someone that doesn't have any... Um, uh, realization that there's a difference energetically between them and other people. They just sort of like um, enmesh with everyone around them. And they have also no idea that their behavior or the way that they speak or the things that they talk about are invading someone else's boundaries. In other yeah. words, these are the oversharers, which I've done a lot of, even on my podcast and most recently until I started to learn about this. So the adult will have a lack of boundaries and um, tend to people please and things like that, or just be kind of offensive or abrasive to other people and not have the emotional intelligence to know that their very presence is causing others to become uncomfortable. Those others who have a different set of personal boundaries. Interesting. And the other aspect is one can build walls, right? So you had your boundaries invaded as a kid. And so you're walled off. You're completely emotionally unavailable and impervious to any perceived or real threat and coming in the form of intimacy. Mm. And then sometimes we'll oscillate between those two. I bring that up because I've really enjoyed the cathartic experience of becoming very vulnerable as I've started to produce public content over the past couple of years and talking to people like you and they want to know some of the details of my crazy ass childhood and um, you know addictions and things like that. And so in the right container, in the right context, I think there's value in that vulnerability because someone else who has a lot of shame around, say, being sexually abused or being a drug addict or having an eating disorder or mental illness, if no one's talking about it and it's in the shadows, then they remain in the closet and they remain unhealed because they don't know that you can't even be healed. Yeah. Then they hear someone come out and say, yeah, I used to be a cutter or a bulimic or whatever, and here I am. A healthy, shining, um, you know, member of society, and that person who's still suffering goes, "Fuck me too." I, it's okay to talk about it, right? So that's the healthy side. But on the other side, is knowing when the time and place is appropriate to divulge the things that you're working on that are rather intimate, and that's where the boundaries thing and the balance kind of comes into play. And I think myself, um, at various times, I've probably made some people very uncomfortable by divulging too many intimate details of of my path um, when they weren't ready to hear it or when it wasn't the appropriate venue. And I mm. lacked a little emotional intelligence. And then looking back going, well, of course, no one ever taught me boundaries. So I'm at a dinner party like, yeah, I smoked crack and was molested. Anyway, you know, and everyone's kind of like, maybe they're a bit more conservative. They're like, whoa, uncomfortable, TMI, no boundaries. So mm. I've invaded someone's boundaries, the other person's boundaries by sharing in too much detail about very personal experiences in my life. Right. So isn't that interesting? It is. What's the name of that? Because now, now I notice it. Sometimes I'll be out with a group of people and someone will start like oversharing and I'm like, oh God, it doesn't bother me because I'm not easily jarred. But I'll kind of see everyone like, 
kind of get a lump in their throat and they're like, awkward, like oversharing. Uh, the book's called Facing Codependency and Facing, facing Codependency and Facing Love Addiction. Pia Melody, amazing teacher, um, worked clinically at a place called The Meadows for a long, long time in Arizona, which is kind of an all-encompassing rehab for all sorts of disorders. Interesting. Drugs, alcohol, and otherwise. But she's really one of the one of the foremost experts in family dynamics, relational dynamics, and topics like love addiction, sex addiction, um, codependency, boundaries, all this kind of stuff. Her work is just seminal and amazing. And just when you think like, I always think, okay, I've kind of got, I got it, my shit sorted. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, I pretty much know everything now, you know, humbly. But um, no, you think like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm a normal person now. And then you read something like that, and you're like, oh man, Whoa. God, my childhood screwed me up even worse than I thought. And there's still ways that it's manifesting. There's still things to work on. So I read a book like that. And then I become perhaps a little more cognizant of other people's boundaries in terms of what I choose to share and when. Yes. And it, I think that like, that actually is one of the ultimate uh, one of the ultimate wisdoms, if you will. So it's the other it's the other side of, of authenticity and yeah. vulnerability. Like that's healthy and good because it gives other people the permission to heal in those ways because you're bringing things out of the shadow, as I said. But I think it has to be um, done with a degree of um, discernment and prudence, right? Where you're doing it in a tactful way and it's been invited so if i come on your podcast yes. and i say yeah i had some issues with addiction in a very ambiguous way and you're like well what did you do well okay so you're you invited talk about right it. yeah and if you were to ask me what's the very worst moment you ever experienced in the depths of your addiction i could probably think of a couple pretty gnarly situations but i don't necessarily need to offer those up unless that's been elicited by you my partner in conversation or partner in the interview and yeah so this is the me learning how to finesse boundaries and do more good than harm. I call so I call that process, which is just being in the listening. I think what's interesting uh, about our culture at the moment is everyone's in the shouting, the talking, but a lot of there's there's a less of a, an appreciation for the listening, and this goes a little bit to something we shared earlier when when you were interviewing me, but that. That notion of elders and like that humility, yeah. the humility of elders, right? And like the true wisdom speakers, like the one, the people. Like, and I shared this earlier. I'll just share for the benefit of those listening now, in case they hadn't listened yet. Just how resonant I find it when some when someone is an elder or or, or a teacher, but doesn't lead with that like guru, like the energy of you know. I shared it specifically this gentleman named Jerry, who's Dene or Navajo. And, you know, you wouldn't know, you know, he's wearing a T-shirt and a trucker hat. He's not trying to present himself as being anything. But I sat sweat with him uh, in a sweat lodge and just the like profound wisdom, but just the humility. And he didn't instruct like we were talking earlier, you know, he didn't instruct, oh, this is this and this or he didn't overshare. He was just like very much in the listening. And then he would share stories. Right. None of which were like you should do something. It was all like (laughs) it was all like. Oh wow! Like you were captivated by the narrative, and you could find your way in there, yeah. and it almost left you wanting more, right? But I'm sure I'm not. I could. I can't, okay, I'm not sure, but if I had to guess, that's probably him being in the listening, right? To your point, like the emotional intelligence, the yeah. EQ, but yeah. also just like the listening beneath the listening, right? Like great musicians, it's like 
their music is special because of the space between the notes, yeah, you know? Totally. And I think for us, it's like, how can we as communicators, as community members, as friends, as, as people relating to each other, find that space between the notes with each other, right? Like, so we're not like blasting someone our solo, right? I mean, that music is a good analogy, right? Like sometimes you'd be yeah. on stage, you'd be like, dude's been on a solo for a minute, right? Like I feel sorry for the drummer, dude. He's like, he's holding the beat for a long time. But like other times where you're like, whoa, it's like seamless, right? Jazz is really good at this, where it's like each person takes just enough time, leaves you wanting more, yeah. and then hands it off to the next yeah. person. And the music is good because of that alchemy of the space between the notes. And I, I love that because I think it's it's becoming even more of a skill in this day and age because the the societal notion is really more about, you know, sort of the spray and pray, like put it out there. Yeah. Whereas I think the real the sort of pivot is <laughs> is really more not spray and pray, but actually listening boundaries being in, you know, being in the listening and creating sort of space between the notes and finding that resonance. Like, where do you resonate, you know, and like, who do you resonate with? That's great advice. It's something I'm working on myself. Yeah. Getting better at listening because I can really talk when I get excited about something. It's a great thing about being, you know, the host of a podcast and listening back to my first probably 150 of them. Yeah. Everyone I listen to, I'm like, Luke, shut up. Let the guests talk. And even, you know, when, when, I, when I'm criticized, they're magnified times a thousand. Sure. I, I have 10,000 iTunes reviews that are like, Luke is the best thing since, you know, sliced bread. And then the one person's like, he talks too much. That's all I will hear. Yeah. Um, but I, I did get some feedback about that. And also people that are very close to me and feel safe to be honest with me. I've also said, dude, sometimes you kind of like suck up the air in the room. Like you're so extroverted and you just talk and you get excited and there's no room for me or... Huh. Or, uh, or other people sometimes. And I take those things to heart. I really pay attention to that, you know? Well, that I think is a beautiful, I mean, just being in the demand for feedback also from friends. I mean, yeah. that's a real, that's a real maturity, right? Like, because how else are we going to hear it? Right? Like, you know, I think it's, 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 it's so infrequent that we actually solicit heartfelt critique, right? Yeah. Like, I think, you know, I'll give you credit for asking your friends, right? And I, I've done di- different personal workshops where I've done this, you know, and I've been, mm-hmm. with, they call it basically a demand for feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Like, be a, <laughs> be a demand for feedback. Like, right. leadership is, and there were elements of it that I felt were a little like NLP, <laughs> but I was like... I kind of I can I can get down with that right yeah. because you don't want to drink your own Kool Aid. A lot of people I think yeah. fall over because they're drinking their own Kool Aid, and I think part of the humility process is like, okay, how can I be a demand for feedback, right? Like, and by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's definitively right. But if four or five people, if you ask twenty people and four or five people have something that's of a similar vein, then it's probably right, right? Because a lot of times yeah. people see things. Not as they are, but as they see a reflection of themselves, right? Yeah. And oftentimes things we don't like are things that are in ourselves, but we don't really love that about ourselves, you know? Um, but like if you were like, oh, if like, you know, I, and I have no idea, but like if you've asked 20 people and four people were like, oh, okay, th- I see this. And they say it graciously, not as like a slight. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I can take that on measure, you know? Like, yeah. Um, I think it's a really beautiful practice, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, um, you know, going back to relationships, the, 
if not the most valuable thing that's helped me, um, if not the most valuable, one of them is seeing the value in um, having mentors and mentees. Yeah. You know, it's like, what what value does a life lesson really have if you can't pass it on mm-hmm. to those that are asking for it? You know, yeah. I'll give that exemption yes. not to go around and proselytize and tell people, listen, you know, I'm going to tell you how to solve your problems. But I have numerous friends that call me, hey, man, I got this thing going on. Let me run it by you. What do you think? And some of them is more of a, a mentorship based relationship. And sometimes they're just peer to peer and like, hey, dude, I got something going on. I'm a little unclear on what's your take. And um, sometimes the wisdom that uh, ensues surprises me. And I say yeah. that with the, with the utmost modesty. Totally. But, you know, I'll be on the phone with someone. Okay, so what I see is da 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 And then I hang up the phone. I go, shit, that's really great advice for you, Luke. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's like, I, how did I, I didn't even know the stuff I was saying. And sometimes you're fortunate enough to be a conduit from a higher intelligence, for lack of a better term. You're not a vessel. Good. Yeah, and that comes from, I think as a reward for being willing to be of service and to help other people. Yes. And then on the other side of that, you know, having a conduit that has um, an in and an out portal and having mentors that you go to and spiritual guides and advisors. It's just, I want more of them in my life. Even right now, I'm really seeing, man, I really need a business coach. I feel Mm. sort of fragmented and stuck in various ways. And I think someone who's got some acuity in terms of entrepreneurship and producing media and content and doing the things I'm doing could probably come in from the outside and really shake things up in a positive way. Um, I do have a a spiritual advisor that I call and I called him the other day and I said, man, I have a situation um, from my past that kind of keeps reoccurring and um, I don't know really how to handle it. I'm trying to be thoughtful and compassionate about it, but also take care of myself. Like where's that center line of the boundary and, Mm. Um, and he gave me some really great advice and I trusted his advice because he's got some years on me and has been through a bunch of the shit that I'm going through a bunch of times and has figured some stuff out, like what truths or principles to apply in any given situation, uh, that serve the highest good and have the most positive outcome for all involved. Yeah. And I don't know what I would do without having people that I can go to, to get advice from I mean, to figure life out on your own. It's like, are you kidding me? There's just some... There's certain things that you you can't you gain wisdom in, right? And then you you get tuned into your intuition. And there are a lot of things. I'm like, I, I need to call someone and like figure this out. And then I just pause and I go, Nope, I know what to do. I might not like the answer that I'm getting from my right. self because it doesn't give me what I think I want, or it's going to be too scary or hard to face the the confrontation or whatever might be involved in um, the resolution. But there are times when I'm just like ass backwards and I have no idea what to do. I just can't see the light totally. I'm too deep underwater. And it's just like, wait, wait, which way is the surface again? Um, and that's just, where mentors, I think, are gold. Because I think you're yeah. right. Like you, it's like being in the listening within yourself, right? Like meditation. Like sometimes you know the answer. You just kind of want to avoid. Like I remember asking, calling friends and asking for advice on stuff. I already knew the answer. It was like, should I do this course? I already knew I should do it. But like I had to call and have like three one hour conversations with friends, yeah. which I didn't really need. Yeah. Then there's other times to your point, like probably one of the best things you can do in the world. I mean, they've actually research has shown like the single greatest thing. If, like someone's an at risk youth, um, I was a teacher as my first my first job. They said the the single greatest thing that that can have the most positive prolific impact is if one person 
demonstrates care and concern and good mentorship mm. for, yeah. for sort of someone who's lost. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like all of us, no matter who you are, even Olympic level performers have coaches, right? Yeah. And it's like, why do we think we should be, it's like a misnomer. Why do we think we should do it alone? Like, yeah. why not find someone who's exceed, excelled already in the area and the different areas, right? Your coach or your mentor in one area may not be the coach or the mentor in another area, but like, certain people soliciting certain, you know, they say you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Like, I'd like to like, actually off this conversation, I'm going to consciously do this. I'd love to support you if you want to do this, like mapping out like, okay, in this area of life, who would be someone I really emulate? Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe not necessarily explicitly be like, hey, will you be my mentor? But like, I'm going to add some value to that person. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe if I am in need, they'll pick up the phone at some point or whatnot. But I think that's such a valuable share. Yeah, there's a, a quote that I'd like to find the real verbiage to, but it says something, and I don't know who it's by, but it says something. I read it once and it stuck. So like, that is bomb. It says a man who keeps his own counsel, or show me a man that keeps his own counsel and I'll show you an idiot. Basically, you know? <laughs> it's like any person that thinks like, oh, I'll just figure everything out on my own, you, you're an idiot. Yeah. Because there's just no way any human being can have the objective point of view that's necessary to solve certain uh, dilemmas. Some things are just, you're too close to it. You're too invested. The outcome is perceived as too um, important. Yeah. You know, choice A or choice B. It's like, I'm right here. I'm standing right next to choice A and choice B. I just, I just can't see how I'm going to win. Yeah. Uh, but someone sitting across the room can go, dude, obviously choice A because the following reasons. Yeah. Because not because they're necessarily a sage uh, and sound advisor, but just by the very fact that they're objective. Uh, yeah, and they're not, like, we all have blind spots, Yeah, and they're, right? not, and they're not invested in the outcome. So totally. I call my friend, like, hey, should I buy house or A or house B? They're going to give me a very analytical, objective, logical point of view. Yeah. They're not going to go, I don't know, like, that other one's more expensive, but it just feels good. Yeah. You know, they're going to go, especially if I call a male embodied friend they're going to be like well let's look at the numbers da, 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 da. what makes most sense and they're going to see things that i can't see because i have attachments that they don't have mm. they don't care what house i live and they don't care if i stay with a girlfriend or whatever dilemma i happen to be with you know if they're an honest friend that they'll give you really, an objective yeah that really just wants to help they're going to be able to give me an unattached point of view there's a question i like that i was asked and it just hit me i'd like to ask you uh, was asked to me several years ago, and I've ne- it's not something I don't ask every guest, but when I feel there's a resonance, I ask, which is, if there were one thing you could add to your life and one thing that you would take away that you feel would have the most profound transformative impact, what would they be? I think if I could have one thing taken away, it would be any remaining doubt that there's a benevolent, loving, all-knowing, all-powerful force in the universe that absolutely wants the best for me. Mm. Yeah, if I could remove anything, it would be that doubt. The Yeah, but what about, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like your friend says, dude, it's, everything's going to be cool. Yeah, but what about? Uh-huh. Even, uh huh. What if this happens? Any you know? equivocation? Yeah, just living in you know having that constant. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think things are going to work out, but right now I can't see. 
Um, so having that sort of, because that's really at the root of what I, at first, my first answer would be like, oh, remove fear or anxiety or something like that. But it, if my faith was really strong enough, then those, you can navigate those, those are waters. after effects of a lack of faith, you know, is when you get caught in, am I going to make it? Am I going to lose what I have? Or am I not going to get what I want? Those are the two primary human fears that drive us. And yeah. at the base of those is not really having a true working faith that there is an order to things that um, can be followed and trusted. Uh, if I could add something to my life, you know, it's so fucking weird. The first, and I, I hesitate to even say this because it's so, such a weird thought for me to have, but I'll just be honest. Um, when you said, what could you add to your life? And this was just the intuitive hit. It was a kid. So wow. Weird. Yeah, because I've, I've not had a really strong desire to be a parent in my life. I mean, I think earlier in life, probably even a fairly strong aversion to the idea just because I was so hell-bent on rugged individualism and hmm. personal freedom of time and resources and everything. Um, I didn't really see the value in having that connection. But that's the first thing that came to mind. And that's probably symbolism for just more of a family unit and that loving security and that loving support that I think comes from a healthy family dynamic where you have a wife or husband and a kid or two and mm -hmm. grandparents around and those kind of things. I didn't experience a lot of earlier in life. It was fairly disjointed and fragmented for the majority of the time. So I think adding some to my life is just the essence of more human connection and more love you know, more touch, more intimacy, more vulnerability, more taking care of others and allowing others to take care of me. And, the, and how that manifested in the first thought was a kid, you know, it could just be more broad mm. of just a family, you know, really building a, a home and a nest and having that sanctity and that security more abundant in my life. Beautiful, man. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. I'm going to take one of yours. I could have went really surface. I could have went like, what do, I, what do I want to lose? 10 pounds. What do I want to gain? Some muscles. Well, I, want to, I honor you actually, because I think you've taken a really deep cut on this, right? Like you've gone, you could have gone super surface. And in some ways we probably would have had, the show notes would have been like full of like, you know, potential tips. I mean, anyone can listen to your show and garner a lot of the insights that you share on a consistent basis. But um I honor you for like really going deep and like sharing vulnerably on your truth and like the things that occur to you and like opening the curtains, you know, I mean, I know that that can be um, scary for a lot of us. And, you know, I think like we said earlier, you know, as you, if you lead the way, others feel empowered to do the same. And I feel like that's talk about healing. I mean, that's one of the most healing things you can do. Yeah. Well, you that's know? something I, I, I learned recently on my show. I interviewed Mastin Kip and he's, big on healing trauma, you know, and really mm -hmm. identifying the, the root of trauma. And to summarize his message is that like what all of humanity's problem is, is we've all experienced some kind of trauma. And once that's healed, then we can move forward. And um, so, of course, we're discussing, you know, all the different ways in which us humans experience trauma. And then my big question is obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I fix it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, trauma, I get it, I get it. All right, what do I do about it? And um, his answer was really profound. He said, well, Trauma is healed in relationship to other through building trust and vulnerability and intimacy. And so I think that can be done in the confines of a romantic relationship, a close familial relationship, or even a budding friendship like ours in the context of a podcast. So for me to, I don't even think I've been terribly deep and revealing, but yeah, I could have talked about like spirulina and fucking red light therapy or whatever, you know, yeah. um, which is all great. 
But going a little bit deeper is more interesting, A, and I think that it's a way to actually heal is through relating to sit down just man to man, have a very open, honest, vulnerable talk with you is um, is enlightening because I see things about myself through that vulnerable sharing that I might not be able to see without you. Yeah. You know, like med- I love meditation. I meditate every day. I have been for years and years. And I mean, I can be by myself in a float tank for five hours. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I love quiet. I love stillness. I love being alone. I love contemplation and all of that. But you can accomplish so much more when there's another embodied soul in that equation. Agreed. You know, especially I- in in the in the context of healing trauma of like yeah. saying, "Hey, man, here's my heart. I think you're safe." I can trust you. I'm going to share some stuff with you. I know that it's going to be held with reverence and respect. You're going to honor my journey. And we can have a real conversation and, and actually be transformed and be healed through those means versus having a fun surfacey talk about some vitamins and shit. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's also useful. But in a conversation like we're having, if I see the opportunity yeah. <laughs> to take it to a deeper level, I'm always going to choose that. And that's be- I think that's beautiful. The other thing that occurred to me, just as you were sharing now, was, you know, I, it sounds like you've had some containers where this has been present. But I think also, because uh, you mentioned the word, just sort of the, the gender, not to make it gender specific, but I think there are, there, in my view, there aren't enough avenues for men to relate to each other in a way that's commensurate with what I would call the mature masculine. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk as there needs to be because we've lived in a sort of patriarchy for so long and the, and, and the suppression of what I would call the divine feminine has been so persistent. But for either to rise, like the divine feminine and the divine masculine need to rise together, right? Because it's like they're consorts. And I think there is there aren't enough voices around what I would call divine or mature masculinity, and so much of the masculine uh, healing can happen when men can relate to each other more vulnerably. Which is just unfortunate. I've been very lucky. Like my dad took me through a container where I did men's work, and then I had an integration group where I got together literally every week with four or five other men and we were committed to each other's work and we went through these these sort of sacred rounds where everyone had an opportunity to share. But I can tell you it went from one of the lowest moments, like my partner cheating on me, like dealing with my own, like at that moment, like feeling super shame, like definitely going to like beers and whatnot to like numb. And then four years later, like going to grad school, like just basically, a to- and the reflection, the feedback was like total sea change, like from that mm-hmm. point to four years later. I'll talk about that another time because mm-hmm. not this show isn't about me, but it's just to say, I also honor that you've created that sacred space for us to like, you know, just like be real with each other. And I think that that anyone doing that is a gift to others um, and a gift to others, whether they're man, male or female. But I, I invite more men to take the time to do that because I think yeah. oftentimes there's this, you know, we, at least the generations before me, there was such a, a legacy of stoicism and bearing your emotions and not talking about your traumas, to your point. Yeah. And the vulnerable sharing of that heals us. And then, and then as a result, there's profound downstream consequences because so many more people um, are, are impacted by that. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's just important to find, to find, uh, 
We we went we went so strong, guys. <laughs> that, that, was that was the camera. Um, I was about to close anyway, but but finish your yeah, finish your. The last thing the last thing I was going to say was, um, it, in my own experience, it's been really valuable to just build an awareness around the polarity of energy between masculine and feminine, mm. and understand how they both operate within me and within others, no matter what kind of uh, yes. genitals they have. I know that. In romantic relationships, I operate, I'm much more fulfilled by having a masculine energy role in the relationship. But part of my ability to do that comes with me being able to access my feminine. Because in conflict resolution, uh, cold masculine energy stoicism and just holding space can be a hindrance to working through things. And one has to be able to access their feelings in order to communicate their feelings. But to get stuck in that is counterproductive, you yeah. know? Um, it's like a lot of people think like an angry, rageful man that punches walls is toxic masculinity. That's toxic femininity. That's someone not being in control of their emotions, right? And being highly emotional is more of a feminine storm. But the other side of that, conversely, stuffing that anger that, you know, you want to punch the fucking wall and you're just going inward with that and keeping your mouth shut, that leads to all sorts of other pathology so there has to be healthy means by which to express some of the feminine storm within us but also having an awareness of the container that can hold space and know when it's the appropriate time to do so and to do so in a way that's safe and not threatening to others you know and i think that's the evolution of us as men to be conscious men is to not become highly feminine and ah, you know and highly emotional all the time because that's somebody's got to fucking you know know what day the trash goes out to the curb you know it's like there's a certain stability and framework, I think, individually and collectively that is very valuable from that masculine energy, the analytical, like, calculated um, energy. But it's in the awareness of how it operates within all of us and the ability to play a little bit on both sides of the fence, but know where you are on the fence at any any given time. And that's where we're given the opportunity to um, aim for mastery in that way Mm -hmm. so that you're not just blindly led by your energies that you can you know, dictate to a certain degree which one you want to use based on what's more productive in that moment. Yeah. I will say, because it occurred to me, to my understanding is that the toxic masculine can also be an emotional expression, but that isn't necessarily to say you're, what you just said was in any way incorrect. It's just uh, what I would say is what I'm what we see a lot of, I think, in this day and age is the unindividuated masculine. And to me, that's like what I would call this sort of epidemic of man boys, where it's like, because we don't have these processes of individuation, mm-hmm. like traditionally cultures would have rituals that would actually like take, would demarcate the, the journey of a boy into manhood that yeah. were quite arduous at times, you know, sometimes not everyone would make it. But but there was a clear line in which a boy knew sort of now he stepped into the responsibility of manhood. And to your point, like we all both, whether you're man or woman, regardless of your biological function, we all have the spectrum of both within yeah. us. Um, but I think it's it's just, I just want to just reflect that it's beautiful to uh, be with another man and to be able to share, um, you know, just intimate truths about ourselves and be able to be like, hey, I haven't figured it all out. <laughs> you know, I've made some yeah. mistakes. Here they are. And but at the same time, I'm also committed 
And, and, and also what I'd honor about you and acknowledge, man, is just like that beautiful vulnerability being like, okay, you know what? And there's something bigger than me and I'm surrendered and I don't always figure it no, no the right way, but I, you know what? I'm going to figure, you know, I'm going to keep getting up. And to me, it's like, it's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get back up. Right. And yeah. so thank you, Luke, for, for your truth. I, this will not be our last conversation. Um, where can where can people find you uh, online? Because you have uh, a treasure trove of rich information. Yeah, I just I broadcast everything I do. Twenty. <laughs> 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 That's the key to being visible is just have a lot of cameras and devices around. Um, you know, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is always my podcast, the Lifestylist Podcast, the Lifestylist Podcast. Uh, it's on which you'll obviously be a guest, and so many other just amazing brilliant people have um, sat down for those conversations and that's kind of the hub of everything I do. And then there's other things that are starting to develop as a result of building that platform and speaking engagements and um, have my own plans of a book and online courses and all kinds of different things. But um, the Lifestyles podcast is kind of the main, the main place. And then lukestory.com is my website and um, Instagram is my uh, social media channel of choice most days. And that's at Luke story. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Beautiful, man. Go check out Luke. Uh, give him a follow. He's been, uh, he, well, he is a great friend and has been a, a great resource. And what I love, you were talking earlier about mentorship. You know, I think oftentimes there's like a spectrum. A friend of mine said that he likes to have a third, a third, a third. And this is a little bit too quantitative, but a third people where he's aspiring to be. Hmm. A third people that are his peers and a third people he's helping to lift up. And sometimes I think we're both, right? Like, you know, like you may be further along on certain journeys than I am. I may be further along on certain journeys. And like the beauty is that we can reach out to each other and mentor each other. And if not, find the wherewithal and the tools to find those who can help us along this journey. So. Um, I honor you for supporting others in their in their journey. I honor you for allowing me to uh, have Cookie uh, <laughs> with me through this entire conversation. She's, she's been a wonderful co-pilot, yeah. and I'm looking forward to next time. Thanks, brother. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for joining me on this rebroadcast of Peak Mind with Michael Trainer. I love doing these shared interviews. I got the idea from Lacey Phillips, who was a guest on my show and then put her interview out on her feed, which I thought was creative. So I turned around and took my appearance on Lacey's expanded podcast and put it out on my feed. And I thought, you know what? I might as well just keep doing this because it's a great way to expose each other's audiences to the other guests. So thank you so much for joining me on this. I'll be putting these out every couple Sundays or so. I'm also doing a lot of bonus episodes, which are solo shows uh, where I do a QA. and a taken from the Facebook group. So join the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. You can ask questions in there and I'll answer them on those shows. So uh, in other words, we're, we're pumping out about six to eight episodes, including uh, these type of rebroadcast shows per month, which is just insane. I can't believe there's so much content, but it's there. So I might as well put it out. And thank you so much for joining me. I'll be back next Tuesday with Cutting Edge Cures, The Cerebellum Secret for ADD and Deep Learning with Winford Door. Make sure you subscribe to this show so you don't miss Tuesday's episode or any episode to follow. Have a great weekend.